Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast, a special edition. Today's guests are Taylor Glenn and Josie May to talk about the recent discussion concerning the top 40 jugglers and sexism in juggling. A big thanks to our sponsor, the IGA. Check them out at juggle.org. Now sit back, drop everything, and listen to Taylor Glenn and Josie May. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast, a special edition with my two special guests, Josie May and Taylor Glenn. Let's start with you, Josie. If you'd uh, introduce yourself, please, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey there. Thank you for having me. My name is Josie May. I have been juggling for eight years, mostly clubs. I've been leading some form of feminist juggling workshops and feminist juggling discussions for the past two years. I've served on the IJA Board of Directors, and I'm the current World Juggling Day Program Director. Outside of the IJA, I'm a coordinator and coach with a social circus project that is tuition-free, year-long, multidisciplinary, that is centered for youth and young adults experiencing marginalization and systemic oppression. Thank you. And Taylor, if, I'm sure most people know you already, but if you don't mind, a short introduction. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Taylor Glenn. I've been juggling for about 15 years on and off in our community. Uh, I love the juggling community. I love juggling. I mostly juggle balls, but I can do a lot of other stuff. And I, you know, I spend a lot of time making videos of myself on the internet and trying to teach other people how to juggle and be better jugglers, both in their skill and in the community. That's why we're trying to have this special edition of Drop Everything, because we want to talk about the community and the role of female jugglers in the community and how we can be more supportive and encouraging to all jugglers in our community. Let's talk a little bit about how this all came up initially, and that was the top 40 jugglers of the year. Uh, Taylor, do you mind sort of explaining what that is and what the new rule changes have been for this year? Sure. Um, the top 40 jugglers is a, a, a poll that is taken every year by Luke Burridge. I think it's been going on for 12 or 14 years or so. Um, it started as just sort of a fun thing on a forum and has evolved into quite a big thing in our community. Basically, everyone um, who wishes to can vote for their top 10 jugglers of the year, whatever that means to them. And then Luke will compile the results and come up with the top 40 that were voted for. Uh, he does this every year. It's usually a fun thing that everyone's excited about. Um, but for the last while, uh, a lot of people have raised concern uh, that it just doesn't seem to reflect really the community as a whole. And people feel that it, it has an imbalance in it, especially because it tends to focus on white, cis white men. And um, so Luke heard about this recently um, and decided to try doing an experiment to make a change. And his the new rule that he came up with was to uh, have... You can vote for up to five men and you can vote for up to five women, um, but no more of either of those genders. And then you can vote for as many non-binary folk as you want, up to 10. And uh, that is the new rule that kind of started all this. And what, who brought it to his attention? Uh, Josie, do you know who brought this? Was was Taylor really the one who brought this to his attention and then asked him to make a rule change? Or was this his, Luke's decision that he felt this was the answer to the situation that was brought up to him? It's my understanding that it was Luke's decision um, as a solution to this ongoing issue. And I'm not sure how it was specifically brought to his attention. I know that um, it is something that people have been talking about for a while, like more than a year. I'm sure that he has had that brought to his t attention a few times. This particular idea, um, this gender quota, I think was popped up on juggling home, I think, by a, a woman. And I think that may have been the catalyst for this particular change. The thing that caught his eye and made him decide to enact it this year. And Josie, uh, I know we talked about this before, but Taylor brought up the term cis white male. Uh, for the viewers or listeners who don't understand that term, can you explain what a cis white male is? That's C-I-S. Yeah, so cis is short for cisgendered or cisgender, and it's a term for people whose gender identity matches their sex assigned at birth. So I am a cis woman. Okay. Yeah. So so it seems to me that that was a pretty reasonable idea to try, that there seemed to be an issue that some people in the community 
uh, had a problem with. And of course, others didn't because we can see by the responses. But it seemed like there was quite a bit of backlash. What do you think the main backlash and main reason why people didn't want to accept this new rule? Uh, Josie, do you want to try to take that one? Sure. I mean, what was the biggest uh, sort of complaint about this rule change? I think we saw many. Um, one that sticks out to me is that it is unfair. Um, and there was a lot of unfairness in that uh, new rule. Would that be based on sort of the overall population of jugglers to begin with? Meaning that there are obviously a lot more male jugglers than female jugglers. So by voting for five of each, it seems like the ratio it would make it much easier for a woman to get into the top 10 because there are few women, fewer women to choose from. Is that sort of one of the main problems with it? Taylor or Josie or whoever wants to explain? I'm happy to answer that, Josie, if you feel comfortable no, with that. I'm a little stumped. <laughs> yeah, um, basically, so what I saw was a lot of immediate reaction, uh, definitely saying that it felt unfair. Um, and for the reason that you just said, Dan, mm -hmm. I think that what definitely alarmed me the most about the reaction was that it was didn't seem to understand what the purpose of like equal opportunity actions are. The whole point of them is to try to correct an unfairness that inherently exists. So while it does appear that it's less fair because, yeah, there are more men than there are women that are juggling right now which is an assumption, first of all, that we don't actually know. There are quite a few more women than people acknowledge. But even if that's very likely the case, that there still is a majority of men juggling, uh, I think the idea is that there are a lot of other factors that contribute both to why there are more men juggling and also just why there are so many less women on the list. And the whole goal, I think, of Luke's experiment was to create more noticing for the women that are juggling, to create more support for them, to um, maybe counter some of the deep biases that are contributing to them being less on the list and contributing to them not being as comfortable in our community. So it was sort of an attempt to do that. It's not necessarily a blanket, like, now it's going to be more fair. It's, a, it's an attempt to correct an unfairness that exists. And that usually takes time. It doesn't happen immediately. And how would someone generally get on the list in the first place? Like, would they be someone who posts a lot online? Would it be because they appeared at festivals? Or does it have something to do with, like, uh, their career outside uh, the online community? Yes. All those? All of those things, I think. I, I, it's a, that's kind of one of the main problems and criticisms with the list is that there's no judging criteria. Um, it's basically just whoever you like. Yeah. And that's very loose, right? Some people, you can tell, clearly vote based on technical skill and technical skill that's related more to like sports style juggling. Some people clearly focus it based on creativity. Some people base it on your contribute contribute contribution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the word. Your contribution to the community, things like that. So it's a very, there are no rules. Luke makes that pretty clear. Do you think this, uh, ask Josie this, do you think that the list helps you professionally? Like if you get on the top 40 list, it would help you get more work or help you uh, have more something else to add to the resume? Is it important in that way, you think? I would definitely ask Taylor that because she's appeared on the list. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, I don't have the best understanding of the juggling community's relationship with this list. I know for some, they don't even pay attention to it. Maybe other people do associate it as you know, an, accompliment, an accolade you can put on your promotional materials. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, personally, have you ever tried as a professional to get on the list to help your career and then somehow been felt like you weren't able to get on because of some discrimination? I have not personally tried to get onto the list. No. Because I think one, one guy I read on the, uh, the forum, he's like, what's preventing women from making cool videos? Like that was his, yeah. his basic, uh, I saw response. that a lot. So what, what, um, what is that? What, how would you respond to that? I understand that uh, if we look back at the systematic systemic things in the past, but if I'm just a dude saying what prevents women from making cool videos, mm -hmm. what's, what's the answer? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to no, talk over uh, you again. Totally. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Okay. Um, as somebody who has been on the list for a couple years now in the top 10, I think, oh, which is, nice. 
Yeah, I, I first want to address your first question, which was like, what is the impact of the list on people who make it on the list and also just in the community? I, I think that it's definitely just a popularity list and that's what it should be. Mm-hmm. I think it holds a lot of kind of ridiculous value. People try to assign a lot of value to it. Like they reinforce this idea of those people being the best in the world, which I don't think is at all true. And uh, I think for me personally, I didn't get much from it other than harassment, but uh, I think a lot of people who do get on the list for possibly more technical skilled reasons, I think that they feel like it gives them some clout in our community, a little more respect. And I do know that some people, a lot of people on the list have reported that they've gotten more followers and like, you know, social media presence because of that. So there is a value that comes from it. And then your question, what was your second question that you just asked? Well, what prevents women from making more videos? That's a question I see a lot, um, which, and it surprises me, honestly, because I thought it was pretty clear in our, in the world, how much more harassment women get online than men. Like, it's a really big problem. All you have to do is just click around comments on any, you know, two genders of videos and see how much harassment happens on women versus men. So I, I... I know I've talked to a lot of women jugglers about like, why do they not post more? And a lot of it's the, the main reason I get is because of that. It's because they, when they do, they tend to get uh, a lot of, you know, over-sexualized messages, harassing messages about, you know, them only being girls and not being liked because they're skilled, but just because they're women they get their accomplishments dragged through the mud. And then, yeah, they open themselves up to more attention, which often is really sexist and harmful. So it doesn't surprise me at all that more women don't post online. The ones that do have a hard time. Was that part of the harassment you got, that people were saying that you made the list because of that you were a female and not because of your skills? Sort of. I got a lot of comments saying that I made the list just because I'm popular. And then I also and then, you know, I'm I get told that I'm popular just because I'm a girl. So, oh. yeah, <laughs> because it's supposed to be a popularity contest. So it seems that yeah. by doing things to make yourself popular, you, you're sort of you shouldn't be that shouldn't be something you're, you're criticized for. That's something you want to do if you want to be successful in the in the community. True. And I don't I don't even see it as like I don't think social media is. For me, personally, I've never seen it as trying to be popular. That's never been my goal. I, I think a lot of people do that, but I've just always tried to, like, I want to make juggling more accessible and make it more inclusive. So I think that, that people respond to that. But either way, that's beside the point. Yeah, I definitely get a lot of comments all the time about the only reason that I am followed on the Internet is because I'm a girl. Do you think it would be easier as a, as a girl or a female juggler to get followers because of your uniqueness? I mean, isn't that a, a plus in show business in general to be unique? I'll ask Josie, in, in, in like, as a professional, since I'm not a female juggler, do you feel that the call for female jugglers is as strong for male jugglers or that when they call you for a job, they want a particular thing? Like they ask you if you have a particular outfit or something like that? How do you feel you're treated as a female juggler when producers call you for work? I think there's a lot of tokenization in that to meet specific needs for a show and to not come across as being sexist or gendered. Because I saw another comment that said there are no female comedy jugglers on cruise ships. And I've worked cruise ships, and that's true. Do you think that the this systemic uh, sort of uh, sexism it applies in a professional system as well? Because... If we look in the, the, the bigger world outside of the, the pole, like professionally, why do we think that exists? Do you think that, that the cruise lines won't hire female comedy jugglers or there's no female comedy jugglers who want that position? So I think when we operate in a culture and in systems that historically have marginalized women and created more barriers for them, we Like the juggling community doesn't exist in a vacuum outside of these cultural systems that are at play. I'm just curious. It just seems like that, that whenever there's an opportunity, because you're the only person in that field, like if you were to market yourself to a a field and be the only female juggler, you would have an advantage. We're talking about there being disadvantages and advantages 
to being a female in the world. Um, so as a male, do I just take the advantages out of the equation and only see the disadvantages to be sort of uh, fair? I personally, uh, I'm not a performer, so I really can't speak um, mm -hmm. for the experiences of performing women, but I've talked to a lot of performing women about this. Um, and most of them will say that like, yeah, there are pluses and minuses to being women in the community. Most of them are in, in the performing sphere. And most of them have told me that they, uh, they try not to let it bother them either way um, and not let them, let it stop them. But what they've noticed is, I think what tends to happen is that, that tokenism that Josie was saying, um, which can lead to people then, especially at festivals and stuff, thinking like, oh, well, this woman only got in here because she's a girl or because she's a woman. And that inherently will lead to a, a negative connotation to her. So she's not even getting really the chance to be seen as for what she can do. And then on top of that, I think in terms of like hiring on cruise ships and stuff, um, I think, yeah, you experience probably a lot of people doing hiring that have a lot of sexist biases. Like they don't expect women to be funny. So they're not going to hire a woman to be funny. And then as a result, it's going to feed itself because if women know they can't get hired to be funny, they're not going to try to be funny. <laughs> and it just perpetuates it. There are women jugglers who are comedians, but they don't get recognized as much. They don't get hired as much. Maybe they're not as good, but uh, I think that there would be more of them if we didn't have a lot of those biases. And a lot of the time when people hire women, yes, they are unique and they can be seen as unique, but a lot of the time it, they're seen as unique because of their bodies. And that's, you know, when somebody says like, oh, hire a woman, it's either a tokenism thing and like a diversity hire in their head a lot of the time, or it's a, you know, we want somebody sexy and they're not going to hire a woman that doesn't fit that role. So they're not really trying to be inclusive of women. They're trying to be fulfilling a bias that they have. So it, yeah. Well, I could see a bias when I was coming up, like when I would go to Vegas, uh, back in the 70s, late 70s, they sort of had a thing where the dancers were, were women. So all the variety acts were men because they wanted to have more of a balance in the show. So I think it would have been much harder for a female variety act in that environment to get hired. Yeah. Because I think they saw them, oh, women are dancers, men are variety. I think a lot of people also see it as women cannot hold their own show, which is a mm. huge problem with um, like cruise ships and stuff. Like, and again, this might not be something you or anyone else ex like consciously thinks, but a lot of people, they have that, that bias deep down, whether they see it or not, they'll just assume if they're looking at a guy and a, and a girl, they'll assume that one is going to be funnier than the other just because of their gender. Well, I think I have that bias. I mean, I think as far as what I've been doing in my life, like either directing IJ shows or on the podcast, I've definitely had a bias towards men. Yeah. I, I, there's no way for me not to say that because... I've always sort of felt like I want to have women in the show, mm -hmm. but it was difficult to do so in a way that felt didn't feel like tokenism because of the, the diversity of skills and uh, accomplishments and things you need when you're selling a show. So how do you weigh that? And when you're trying to put together a show of, I want to have the most successful show, but I want it to be not, you know, all male oriented when there's not that many women to sort of in the talent pool to begin with. Josie? No idea. <laughs> I think, I think personally, um, I think there's a lot of assumptions there that women are like, I don't think you need like a thousand women to choose from. There are a lot of mm -hmm. talented women. I know that it's hard. And I've had a couple of festival directors tell me how hard it is if they don't have a budget to fly women in. And that's that I get. Uh, I think there are other ways to try to create that, inclusiveness if you really cannot afford to bring someone in and you don't have a, a talented woman or you feel you don't have a talented woman in your community like your local community but I think that uh there are a lot more amazing women performers um and people just don't really know where to look or aren't willing to to do that work to find them and sometimes they are harder to find because uh, they're in a system that makes it hard for them to be found and so yeah no, I think like, if I look at this podcast, there's a lot of more talented, interesting women than I've been used. I'm not saying, saying, saying yeah. oh, there's not enough in, in the talent pool, especially in this situation where I could have, uh, it's not a budgetary thing. It's just purely a bias of, for me, thinking it's easier for me to get uh, male guests because I know more of them. More mm -hmm. of them are my friends. 
Yep. And also maybe that we share the same perspective. So yeah. Josie, on this podcast, what do you think a good ratio for me to shoot for? Do you think it's it's realistic for me to go for 50-50? Like if I have a male guest, I should have a female guest next time. Judging on the audience and on the sort of talent pool to choose from, what do you think is a good ratio of male to female guests to be supportive of women in juggling? So something very important, I think, to include that we haven't addressed yet is that mm -hmm. gender doesn't exist on a binary. There's trans, non-binary, agender, two-spirit, and all of their experiences inside, outside, and beyond this male, female, westernized understanding of gender. Yeah. And so when we talk about there being two genders, that's it's not including all these other experiences and expressions of gender. That's not my place to speak on because I do identify as a cisgendered woman, but I know I've learned so much from my trans and non-binary and two-spirited friends and would just encourage everyone to Google is your friend and don't underestimate like if you have a question about gender that you are confused about to just type it in. It's not going to judge you like you're good there. So as far as like a ratio or a quota system, I think personally that was something that I struggled with in Luke's decision on the top 40 because it was not explicitly communicated that there was, you know, as five men, five women. And, and I misinterpreted that for sure. And I did see a lot of comments around it that eventually were cleared up, which is great. So I think maybe a suggestion, actually an idea I had was like just five men on the list, five cis men on the list total, and then you can vote for whoever else you want. <laughs> but let's say, vote. I mean, what part, what part should gender play though? Because if I had a trans guest on the podcast, I wouldn't want to, I would want to treat them as the, the gender they identified with. Yes. So how would that relate then to saying, I want to have a trans person on my show, but, but therefore I had to treat them like a trans person. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I want yeah. to have, I want to be inclusive of everybody. But if, if the idea is not to treat them like a trans woman, because they are identified as a woman, how do I deal with that? So trans women are women, women. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, we'll stop. Agreed. Yeah. Awesome. And I think there are a lot of trans women and men and non-binary folks who are talking about the trans experience. And so I would personally seek out um, a trans advocate, a trans activist who is discussing mm -hmm. their experiences openly and consensually have that conversation with them, you know, beforehand is, is this a place you want to go? Is this a perspective you'd like to share? Because many people do want to speak about this and increase the conversation and visibility and others don't. That process is entirely dependent on the person. Okay, thank you. That's, that's, that's helpful. Thank you. Uh, to add to your question about like, you know, your quota on your list and all that. I think that I personally am not a big fan of quotas either because they do tend to be very exclusionary because like, okay, you include women, um, like 40% women, but now you're not, there's just so much more, right? There's race, there's wealth, there's mm -hmm. all of these things, there's trans, there's non-binary. It, it's just, it gets, it can tend to be more exclusionary when you try to create quotas. I think that what Luke tried to do was great. I think that if he had talked to some more people about it, maybe could have come up with a better idea. But uh, I, I think for you, Dan, with this, with this uh, podcast, mm -hmm. I think it's easy to get bogged down in rules like, well, I need to have this many men and this many women. And that's because of things like this list experiment. Um, usually when those rules pop up, it's really like an attempt by the community to to force people to change and like really expand their horizons. I don't think like with your podcast, you're necessarily at that point where you need to create a rule about it. I think that a great way to approach it would be just to think, how can I get as many perspectives as possible? It doesn't, it's not about men or women or trans. It's just how, you know, all of those things, how many people are going to bring something completely different. And if you tend to get the same, like, you know, oh, it's an, another white guy, you're going to get a lot of the same perspectives. They're different, absolutely individual people, but those perspectives can shift greatly when you highlight people who are part of marginalized groups. And um, with like a trans interviewee, I think it would be, great to acknowledge that even if they don't even talk about 
transgender and being transgender in our community, just having their perspective is going to be different and unique and um, can contribute a lot to the conversation in our community. Well, I will search out interesting guests. And I think by searching out interesting guests with a variety of perspectives and different points of view, I'll get a good variety of the different people in our community. Yeah. As long as I'm aware of it. I think that's the idea behind this podcast and behind the, all the talk is becoming aware of the problem. Yeah. Let's talk about the problems at the festivals because, once again, coming from my point of view, I've been to 30 IGA festivals and I don't think I've seen a situation where I would step in and say, I see harassment or I see women being treated in a way that I would step in to protect them or feel that they're being uh, sexualized or any of these negative things. I know that's a very blanket statement. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to someone who's coming from that perspective? Like, hey, I don't see the problem. Is that because of my white maleness? Just not just being so prevalent? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> for sure. Like, why would you see a problem if it's never been a problem for you? And I think that, you know, you say about moments of, of stepping in and, and seeing like overt sexism or sexualization. And the thing is, it's like an iceberg, right? Where at like the very tip of it, you might see these blatant acts of sexism. But then all below that, you have of like medley of comments, private messages, ex past experiences in the juggling community and outside of it. So I think there's a lot of like invisible harassment that happens that like you wouldn't even see even if you were kind of tuned into the woman female perspective. I mean, how much is, is based on unwanted male attention? Because I imagine as a female at a, a juggling festival, especially uh, females who are considered attractive, in that environment, which is pretty much everybody, because a, a female juggler, I think to a male juggler, is already like, oh, that's, we share that in common. So I imagine when you put yourself in that position of being uh, outnumbered, how, how does that present itself where someone just wants to say that they're interested in you because they like you as a person, but is it just too much because there's too much of that? Like men are approaching you in a, in a creepy uh, bad way? How do we approach women at festivals in a way that's appropriate? If we want to say, I like you and would be interested in getting to know you better on a date or whatever that would be. Is it unwanted attention that's so prevalent or what is it that sort of is this underlying sort of harassment or, or sexism that's not overt or that you say is sort of invisible? Is it just sort of unwanted attention? Is that part of it? I mean, I think Taylor and I can both speak to personal experiences we've had or witnessed or heard, mm -hmm. heard about, you know, we don't speak for all women mm -hmm. at all, just the experiences that I've had. And I think every single woman you talk to will have a different answer to this. Maybe we'll come back to that. Just to answer your like specific question of how do you approach a woman that you might be interested in and okay. don't want to creep out if you are interested maybe just be transparent and say hey I think you're really attractive I would like to get to know you better because an experience I've had a lot of is not being upfront with that request and rather hey let's juggle together when the underlying assumption is wanting to engage romantically or sexually I think in asking and being transparent with your wants you also have to have a space for the answer to be no and for that to be okay and, and to see if you can continue that relationship. And I mean, this also entirely depends on the relationship you have with that person from the beginning. As you would ask anyone on a date, you're probably not gonna have a positive experience if that's like the first thing you connect on. I guess just don't be creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think for me personally, I, I don't like the term unwanted attention because mm -hmm. I think it, it uh, kind of brushes under the impact that that attention has because attention sounds good you know like unwanted attention i think that it's i know what you're meaning by that and i should we call it sexual attention like male sexual attention i'm not even sure um what the term for it would be but i, I get what you're asking and i do think that yes that is a big problem for me personally uh, i definitely get a lot of attention that i don't necessarily want and it, it definitely tends to be surrounded by that that sexual atmosphere because when you go into a juggling gym at a festival, you know, like Wes Peden or Jack Denger or somebody is going to get attention. 
but they're getting attention for a different reason. That's frustrating, and and it it can be really um, hurtful when you start to assume that everyone who's interacting with you is is just trying to sleep with you, basically, or date you, or whatever that intention is. But it's not because they're wanting to watch your juggling. And even if they are, that's just not when it happens enough that sometimes tends to be what you're afraid of and you don't trust <laughs> your community as much. So, yeah, I think a lot of women have had the experience at festivals where they they get like sort of surrounded by guys and they kind of feel a little trapped. I've heard of a few women mention how that happens. I've had that happen. It can feel physically very uh, kind of scary, you know, which is rooted in a lot of baggage that women have to carry with uh sexual assault and that trauma and that fear of trauma. And so like having physically being surrounded by a lot of guys can be really intense. So yeah, like, yeah, I guess it's unwanted attention, but I think that they would, myself and many others would love the attention if we felt like it was based in something other than I want to date you. So saying I want to help you with this trick. Yeah. But really they just want to sort of figure out an excuse to get closer to you and get to know you and that kind of thing, but they're not being honest. So imagine any relationship, honesty. Yeah. Which can make you really afraid. I know for me, that's made me very hesitant to accept help or uh, teaching from people who would probably help my juggling a lot, but just makes you very on edge of what, what does this person want from me? Because a lot of the time they do want that and they won't be upfront about that, that that's what they want. They'll say, Oh, I just want to juggle with you or, can you help me with this trick or can I help you with this trick? And then all of a sudden you're wrong for leading them on or something, which is something I get a lot. And I think gotcha. that being able to, to be upfront with it, I certainly wish that my male friends would do that more just say, Hey, I'm interested in going out with you. Can, would you be interested in that? And more importantly, what Josie said, accepting no as an answer and accepting that if I say no, you know, a lot of women are afraid to say no because they're afraid. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but a lot of, for me personally, I know I'm afraid that if I say no, then you won't talk to me again, that all of a sudden I won't be, right. I won't be your friend. And in a juggling community, that's really hard when so many guys want to date you. And then if you say no to them, then you're, you don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> and <Yeah>. that's hard. <laughs> so being able to hear no and then being able to continue that that friendship and value that that person in the same way that you would a guy friend or any other friend is really important because it doesn't it tells us our value isn't just in dating and sex. Let me so let's go to a term I I've heard a lot this mansplaining. So let's say uh, a man came up to you and started talking to you about juggling and started talking to you about you know what he thought you were doing wrong and what you could do better. Do you get that from like a male perspective? He's sort of coming to you as saying, as a male juggler, I just know better because of my maleness. What is mansplaining exactly? Is it just knowing better because you're a man? Is that the idea behind it? So I think there's a lot of power dynamics at play in that situation of just being approached by a man. I think something very important with giving advice is to have consent before of, Hey, I see you're struggling with this trick. Would you like a tip? And yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ask permission. I got you. Okay, good. Huge. <laughs> ask, ask for consent, right? Yeah. Um, so be to... honest and ask for consent. Just don't go, Hey, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause you're assuming that you, that that person doesn't know. I get that a lot. Like people will give me advice on my juggling when, you know, it's, I fully, un I know that I've thought about those things just as much as they have. It's just that I can't do it yet. <laughs> uh, not that we don't appreciate input because input is valuable in our community and like teaching and helping, but consent is huge. I always try to ask somebody if they want help before I just assume they need it. It's hard though. Sometimes, right? You see somebody, you're looking at their pattern going, that person's holding their hands way too high or you kind of see what they're doing wrong and your natural inclination is to help. Sure. It's not hard to say, Hey, do you need help? Or do you want me to sort of say what I see or something like that? As opposed to let me just tell you Yeah. because I know best. And, and what happens a lot of the time is it's hard to see if you're a guy a lot of the time and I get that, but there is definitely a pattern that men will assume that women need more help and that they are just not as knowledged in many topics. 
And on top of that, you add the fact that women sometimes aren't as aggressive or loud. They get talked over as much or a lot more. So, you know, that reinforces the idea that they don't know as much when they're really just not having an opportunity to speak. Uh, let's talk about competitions in general, as far as like the IGA competitions or now the IRC competitions. Uh, do you think it would, it would behoove us to have a separate male and female competition for like the IGA championships? I don't think that would be a good idea at all, personally. I think with competitions that are more physical based, like technical juggling based, such as like maybe the WJF when they had a... a a women's division. I think that made more sense. And I think that was a really an honestly good way to try to make it uh, maybe more inviting to women. I don't think that the IJA stage championship needs that because there is such a emphasis on non-technical ability when it comes to uh, scoring. Uh, And I guess what I'm saying that is like Josie and I have talked about this before where Sometimes the idea of like a competition, especially like a very physical sport-like competition can be, can feel kind of exclusionary to women because, you know, they're not necessarily as interested or as comfortable doing that um, in a community. And uh, I think the IJA stage championship and the IRCs both take a lot of steps to try to make it appeal to a lot of types of juggling, a lot of values of juggling. You can get first place by being an amazing nine ball juggler, or you can get first place from being an amazing dance juggler, you know? So it's not as gendered or um, biased in terms of how it's judged. But how's that different than the uh, top 40 jugglers poll then? It seems like it would be easier or more fair uh, for the top 40 jugglers, which is based even less on perhaps particular juggling technique. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge the difference between a poll and a, a competition. Like, nobody's competing for the top 40 in the sense that, like, there's no rules. So it's inherently less fair. (laughs) And then, yeah, I think, don't get me wrong, I think that it's alarming how few women do compete in the IJA stage championships. And I think that the IJA can and does try to take steps to to fix that. And it's been getting better. I don't think it's at the point where a quota is necessarily needed in that or or a, a division is needed because it's... It's so loose in terms of how it's judged uh, and it's so broad. You know, there's a lot of diversity that's rewarded there inherently. I mean, if you look at juggling through history and you look at the great female jugglers, it'd be hard for someone to say that the top female jugglers aren't as good as the top male jugglers. If you look at like Trixie, for example, yeah. or Eva Vida or, uh, you know, Lottie Brunt. Mm-hmm. It'd, it'd be hard to say that the greatest of all time were female jugglers, I think purely because of the physical demands of the highest level of 11 rings or, or seven ring pirouettes or things that really you get into the realm of physical strength or physical endurance. But it'd be difficult to say that, that women can't compete, especially in the IGA uh, on a, a equal footing. That's, that's what I, that's my takeaway on it. So. Yeah. I, I wait, wait, real fast. I just want to address, uh, which is a common thing I keep seeing in the community is the assumption that men are, physically more capable of juggling, which I don't think has a lot of footing. You don't think so? No, <laughs> I think that it definitely... Like se- like seven clubs or something, like seven club, like that's that's pretty uh, physically demanding. I'm not saying that... Sure, I, I, I think you could argue that think. like, you know, yeah. you need muscle to yeah. juggle seven objects or more. I definitely feel fatigued when I try to do that. But I also think that, you know, like there's a, an idea of if a woman wants to do that, she is f- very much capable of get- getting that muscle. You do not need enough muscle to do that that is somehow in the limitations of men versus women. It's not like you have to be this souped-up Jason Garfield guy to juggle seven clubs. You do not. <laughs> we have seen many young men juggle seven clubs who are not amazingly muscular. I think that you do need muscle for it, but I don't think that women are incapable of getting that muscle now whether or not they naturally have that much sure but if a woman wants to learn seven clubs she can definitely and probably by that point will have enough muscle to do that Uh, i think there's also if i'm correct there have been studies by scientists in our own community as well as outside of juggling that have said that uh, women naturally are have a tendency to be better at multitasking and fine motor skills which i think plays just as much of a part in juggling as strength. So some people have theorized that women technically have the 
capability of being better at juggling than men. Well, I know in, in some sports like uh, mountain climbing, uh, women have an advantage. That they, I think a lot of the records are in, in mountain climbing because I think it's a strength to weight ratio in that. Yeah, sport. and yet there are way less women who mountain climb because it's such a toxic community. <laughs> and I think we also need to consider with these questions, one, who's holding the standard of what good juggling is, right? Yeah. When you have competition, there's rules and there's guidelines for judges and, and everyone gets to decide that on their own. But as a community, what makes juggling good? Is it the number of objects? Is it the experience someone is having as they're juggling? I think there's so many factors there and I don't know the answer to that at all, but I think what's important to consider is who is gatekeeping the that goodness of juggling? Is yeah. it really objective? What factors are playing into that? And then also, what are other factors that are preventing women from juggling seven clubs? Yeah. Is it cost associated with seven juggling clubs because that's expensive and, and if women are making less money than men they won't maybe have the finances to to acquire seven objects um it's just like one small example of a barrier that is further present preventing women from this you know subjective level of success yeah not to mention representation you know when you are a young woman striving to be one of the best jugglers absolutely a lot of women don't aren't bothered by the fact that there are less women at the top. But I think that the fact that Delaney is out there doing the stuff that she's doing under these criteria of what's considered great technical juggling, I think that we will see a huge ripple in how many young women then suddenly think that they can do that as well. I think it's important not to undervalue representation. I know that it stopped me a few times in my life from doing things because I, I was reinforcing this idea that I couldn't do it just because I'd never seen it done. And that reputation's huge, yeah. especially with entry into a community yeah. and how much the juggling community does have. Like, at least my experience was being accepted by men was like the way to get into the community and feeling like I'm at a juggling club and I need to prove to these men that I'm good at juggling. So I'll stick around and we can form a relationship. And in reality, like I'm not existing here in the struggling club to to please men who are gatekeeping the community, which is definitely what happens a lot. Not to mention that when you start creating competitions and stuff, sometimes, you know, I personally have encountered a few times where guys will get very upset if I'm beating them at whatever they want to be winning at uh, more so than they would with like a male competitor. And I've experienced that throughout my whole life as well, where it just can get very aggressive really quick which again comes back to a lot of uh, something that a lot of women make a goal in their life to do is to not be around aggressive men who can hurt them in some way because it's it's a scary reality that we have to deal with yeah i think there's a lot of reasons behind why there are less of that not to mention if you're going back through history and you're going to compare somebody like trixie uh, or lottie brun to francis brun and you're seeing that maybe they're at a certain level, and but the men are always higher, you have to fully acknowledge that for the last hundred years, women have had way worse of a time doing anything uh, that wasn't traditional homemaking or being in the home. So the fact that Lottie even was able to get out there, uh, I'm sure she experienced barriers that Frances never had to go through. And the fact that she got to the level that she did is incredibly impressive and arguably in my opinion, makes her probably a better juggler. Now, you've had experiences with the jugglers, the female jugglers in Afghanistan. And right. I, I saw on the post that you said that they are a lot more supported and that they excel a lot more. Now, and someone wrote, is, is be, like they had permission of the men to do it. So it was kind of a sort of a, a weird double-edged sword where they were more accepted by doing it because the men gave them permission to do it. Why do you think the female jugglers of Afghanistan excel so much in your experience? Yeah. Uh, first, I want to acknowledge that if anyone is interested in understanding more about the Afghanistan juggling scene and particularly women there, Erin Stevens would be the person to talk to. She has been there far more times than me. She knows a lot more about it. She helped develop the program into what it is. But from my experiences there and talking to Erin about it a lot, uh, I do feel like I can shed some light on this. Yeah, when I was there, I definitely saw how it's really interesting. First of all, the program is run by a man and a woman, but the you know, it's definitely known that Afghanistan is not the most female, women-friendly environment. There's a lot of structure and rules on how women are expected to behave and what they can and cannot do. 
when it came to the circus community there, the circus school, basically it's sort of the opposite as it is in a lot of Western cultures where usually here, a lot of the time girls are encouraged to use their body more with like gymnastics and um, in the circus scene, maybe like aerials and silks and things like that, acrobatics. But uh, in Afghanistan, the women are not allowed to do that because it's, you're basically not allowed to like open your legs, you know, as a woman. So to to flip around in the air would be a big no-no. So they uh, they wanted to let the young girls do something. So they decided that, well, we'll let them do juggling. Juggling will be the thing that we encourage girls to do. Acrobatics, aerials will be the thing that we encourage boys to do, which is sort of inversed in a lot of ways to a lot of other cultures. And what we've seen is that the girls are incredibly talented at juggling and like by and large like so many more uh skilled girls versus boys um there are a few outliers there are some boys that are doing amazing jobs but like compared to the amount of girls that are succeeding uh and excelling at juggling it's night and day and i think that a lot of that has to do with just i think it kind of proves that you know when you expect something of a gender they will often fulfill that. And in our society, in our culture, in our community, I think we often expect women to be not as good or to, to uh, you know, do a different style that a lot of guys will then claim is not as good. And uh, I think that, yeah, we see in Afghanistan when they get that opportunity to do the same type of juggling, that sport juggling, and are encouraged to do that and expect to, to be good at that, we see them rise to that occasion whether or not you know that's because men let them yeah i think that that's a huge interesting problem with afghanistan in general it's just the uh, the men decide what the women can and cannot do but uh i think that's beside the point of whether or not they succeed in juggling well it's an interesting study even though it is sort of based on sexism of the the males have decided this is a female activity but when when given that chance given that opportunity to excel is the reverse situation from we get. It's sort of like the jugglers of Tonga, yeah. where it was only a, a, an activity that women did. Exactly. And I got to visit Tonga and was very disappointed not to find a lot of female jugglers, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it's a less popular tradition. It was something their grandmothers did. Like a lot of them said, oh, my grandmother used to do that. Yeah, it's a tradition that's kind of dying out there, I think. Okay, I have a personal question for Josie. And I brought this up before the podcast began because this is something also that confused me. And this is something I think that goes to a bigger issue than just the photo that Josie sent me. I asked for some photos for promotion for the podcast, which is sort of about sexism and juggling. And one of the photos was, in my opinion, a sexy photo because it was high heels and thigh high socks and garter belts. And I thought, wow, that's really sending a mixed message. So that must be very difficult to portray yourself in an attractive sexual way or in a way that that is appealing and, and then being being oh that's too sexy that's not sexy enough i mean how, how do you figure that out how do you draw the line and how much sex appeal to use in your promotion or in your act and what am i supposed to do with that photo would it be appropriate for me to use a photo that's sort of sexualized in, in as a promotion for this yeah, so I think that's an issue that as women we face a lot, these contradictions of that's too sexy, that's not sexy enough, you're too thin, you're too fat, you're too old, you're too young. Like, we're constantly faced with these contradictions of our self-expression. I think that a lot of that photo for me is taking that power back that as a woman I can feel sexy and attractive and liberate myself because you sexualizing that photo isn't my issue that isn't my problem that's something you are doing to that photo based on your perception of that and I think that probably gets a little more com complex with like advertisement and and show business and and presenting yourself in a specific way to your target audience but in my mind it, I don't feel like it's fully my responsibility for how you view me in that photo oh it's not your responsibility but I looked at it and it goes wow those look like stripper shoes and that's purely, you know, my bias, my whatever it is. But that when I saw that photo, I'm like, whoa, I don't know why what represents that type of shoe as a stripper shoe, but with the, the thin high heels. That seems like you're, you're not dressing for comfort or for uh, functionality. It seems like you're dressing that way 
because it's, you find that that's something that men find attractive. Is that not correct? Hmm. Yeah, I would hesitate to say I do anything because I want men to find it attractive. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> but um, you know, we do have a, a culture that that associates high heels and that attire with the male gaze, right? And, and I think that's important too. Is like who 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 is perceived? What's the lens this person's viewing this photo for? Are you seeing it as? oh, this is a sexy woman or is this is a woman reclaiming her sexuality because she can. I was looking at it as, is this an appropriate picture for me to use for this podcast? I probably wasn't making judgments on, you know, if I was casting a show or if that is appropriate for you to, to model in that way. I just thought it was strange given the, the, the subject matter of the podcast itself. I think that's your decision to your podcast. I think it's like, it's similar, like, would you feel uncomfortable if a guy juggler, like, sent you a picture of him without a shirt? And if your answer is yes, then like, sure. I don't think it's the same. But if it if you're really trying to go for like as PG as possible, then that's your choice. You can do I'm that. Not. I'm just I'm just wondering what my how I'd have to explain it for people who don't understand my take on it. I don't think I'd have a problem with it. If Josie said, that's the photo I want to use to represent me. I'd be like, OK, you know, it's 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 you're, you're being my guest. You're doing me a favor by being on the podcast. That's how I look at it. I think it's a totally fair concern. I, I imagine a lot of people would probably come at you saying like that was an inappropriate picture. So I totally see why you would are hesitant for that. I think that the fact that so many people would do that is sort of part of the problem is what Josie's trying to say is like, you know, this, this idea that I'm not trying to speak for you, Josie, but kind of what I get, got from what you were saying was like, yeah, like, the fact that by seeing a picture like that, a lot of, of guys assume that she's doing that for them, which is interesting. You know, like if you think of if you think of uh, Victor Key and his right. his performance outfit, which is very like a, a unitard or whatever, very revealing in a sense. Like it's not showing his skin, but it's very tight. You can see his body. A sexy outfit. It, it is. Now, yeah. is the, I don't think most men would assume he's doing that to get women's attention or to get men's attention uh, in terms of like sex appeal. I think most people would just assume he's doing that as a statement for himself and what he's trying to convey in his routine. I think it's similar. Like when you see a woman who's being sexy, it's okay to find her sexy, but it's, it's the uh, assumptions that a lot of guys then make after that. Like, well, if she wants, if she's being sexy, then she wants me to find her sexy, which means she wants me to say something sexy to her, which means she wants mm. me to make advances on her, which is really not, which is a strange, like, it's just a strange assumption to make. Why can't she just have wanted to be sexy for her? You know, and I think we see this a lot with a few women jugglers who are, who show how sexy they are all the time and are very confident in that. And they do get, harassed more as a result because people think it opens up doors for that like she's asking for it which is not the case and I know for me personally my whole life I've been terrified of that I intentionally try to cover up more and like become a little bit more of a a modest person because I'm afraid of that uh that judgment and uh I think it's it's been a really big source of uncomfortability for me like feeling like I can't really love myself and my body because if I do, people are going to judge me for it. Well, it's very interesting because like you talk about Victor Key, I mean, obviously sex appeal is part of what he's selling, but I don't think anybody would look at him saying, oh, he's dressing that way to be sexy. Yeah. But if a woman dressed like that, mm-hmm. you know, they'd be, oh, she is trying to be sexy and not just trying to express herself and how she wants to present herself as a performer. And then they would go on to say, well, and the only reason she's up there is because she's sexy, which is a big problem. Right. Take away the sexiness and that's their talent is is being sexy or part of it or a big part of it. Yeah. And that's hard because women have different bodies and we should be allowed to to present them without it being used against us. It's like I'm all for celebrating the differences that often happen between men and women's bodies and other non-binary bodies and all that stuff I think it's it's great to celebrate our bodies but when it's when it is used as a as a gateway to harassment I think it becomes really scary and makes women feel like they can't be themselves let's talk about something else on I saw on the on the post is this idea of tone policing 
meaning that there seemed to be some men who wanted to contribute, but if they didn't contribute in the right way, even myself, as I, as I do this podcast, I'm really sort of saying, I don't want to come across like, I want to be supportive because I am supportive, but I'm also a man sort of coming from a man's perspective. How, how do you try to give your point of view as a man and saying, this is how I see it. I, since I don't have a female perspective and haven't suffered the same things or experienced the same things, I can never be taken as seriously because I don't have the firsthand knowledge. Is that fair? For, for, because I don't have the firsthand knowledge, I probably shouldn't be taking this seriously. How do I be part of this conversation and, and be supportive, but yet honest? So I kind of think we're talking about two different things here. Yeah. Um, because tone policing is basically attacking the validity of someone's claim by how they express it. Oh, okay. Some examples of tone policing are um, things like, if you said it nicer, maybe I would listen. Or women are so emotional, why couldn't she just express this nicer? She's so... Mm. angry right we hear that a lot i got and that a lot this last week <laughs> i guess what you, what you hear the word bitchy yeah i got bitchy i got whiny it's like all over right it's like oh you're being bitchy i got you yeah okay. you don't mm -hmm. tend to say that to men so you don't get to tell me how to protest my own oppression and for folks who are experiencing oppression they don't know their oppressors anything. Not to mention, you know, the idea of female hysteria being a historic way to oppress women as yeah. well. Or like how black women are often called angry. And there's a lot of intersectionality with that. Um, continue. Or like our president, he says nasty, right? If you're a nasty woman, you're, you're gotcha. Absolutely. And I think I really appreciate that point on intersectionality because that is always present in the terms of conversation. So yeah, so that's tone policing. I think that the other, can you tell me again what, what the other? Well, the other way is how do I express myself? That makes perfect sense. Like if I yeah. dismiss your point because the way you said it. Yeah. Because I've gotten that myself as a man, like, oh, you, you got too angry or, you, or I can't accept that because the way you, you responded was not the way I liked. I didn't like the message. The message is fine, but the way you said it was wrong. And that's going to be very frustrating. But the other way is like, how do I express myself then where I don't want to cross a boundary, but I just feel hampered in maybe being as honest as I feel I could be, but I don't want to be termed, uh, you know, uh, an anti-feminist or something like that because <laughs> I don't think I am. But I think a lot of people are scared of presenting their opinions because they might inadvertently cross a line. Totally. I think that's super valid. And I think it is a barrier for many people to even begin to engage in these conversations because there is this, as Taylor mentioned earlier, kind of rules or ideas of needing to get it perfectly right and, um, you know, not say the wrong word. And if I exclude someone, then I'm going to be canceled immediately. You know, you, you need to get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable in these conversations. Yeah. And you are going to get things wrong. And there will be discomfort, especially when we turn the lens inward and, and kind of audit ourselves and how we've been harmful to women and to other marginalized groups. Like we might feel our nervous systems activate, especially in conversations, especially on the internet, in Facebook groups, in comment threads, where there is this fast paced kind of instant gratification and, and lack of full contemplation of ideas. You know, you also see the show up of, of like these feelings of, well, not all men do this and I'm a good man. And in, in reality, that's like othering yourself from this issue in the same way that like I'm a white woman and I will always benefit from white privilege. Even if I'm not overtly racist, I will always have racial biases that it's my work to unpack um, and, and consistently do that work. So I don't want that discomfort and the discomfort to be um, a barrier to diving into the work, but rather cultivating a strategy for yourself to handle that in conversation. I think for what I'd like to add is, I heard you say like, well, how do I express my opinion on this? And how do I speak up and feel like I'm being heard? I think a big thing for a lot of guys to realize is that there are times where maybe you don't need to be heard. We're not saying that, you know, your opinion is not valid or that you cannot speak, but just that sometimes, a lot of the time, guys have a, a tendency to speak before they listen. 
and especially when we're talking about oppression, I think it's really important to listen before you speak because you don't have that experience and you don't know fully what the problem is. And so, you know, that was one of the things that I was really concerned about with just this last week in the top 40 list was how many men in our community had such strong opinions about the list and gender, but were not listening to the women uh, who were speaking up and who have spoken up about this before and who have very you know, it becomes this game of like, well, I want my opinion heard as opposed to maybe I need to formulate an opinion after I've heard things. And I think that that's a big reason why guys often get shut down for having an opinion on something that, you know, they haven't experienced is because they're not listening to that other side. And that other side is going to have a lot of insight into the problem because they are experiencing the problem. <laughs> so like, yeah, your opinions are totally valid um, and like should be heard eventually in the discussion. We want these discussions to happen, but it's this emphasis of please listen more and try to formulate an opinion on this issue, on, on these issues um, after you listen to the experiences of women and after you do some research and all that stuff. Like, don't just assume that you know <laughs> the problem or how to fix it. And then I think it's also important that, you, like what Josie was saying, that you get comfortable with being uncomfortable because you are going to mess up and you are going to say the wrong pronoun or the wrong word or the wrong, you're going to, you're going to do it. I do it. We all do it. And it's not the other person's responsibility to make you feel better for messing up by any means. It's your responsibility just to accept that you messed up, apologize and move on and try to do better. It's okay to mess up. We're jugglers. We drop. And if you can learn how to juggle five balls, if you can juggle, learn how to juggle Mill's mess, you can absolutely learn how to say words that are less harmful to other people. It just takes time and it takes practice. And sometimes you'll be met with patience and sometimes you won't. But at the end of the day, you need to keep showing up, keep trying to do the work, keep trying to be better and know that you're going to mess up and be okay with that. Well, I think that's a very good way to sort of... Uh... And our podcast, like I say, it's difficult to solve every problem at once. And part of me wants to say, hey, it was hard for me, too. You know, I, I've never been on the list. I've never gotten to vote. What about me? Mm -hmm. and I guess that's my my maleness saying I suffered. It's a good example, a good chance to solve at least or have a discussion about one problem. We can't solve every problem. Why not have a really good discussion about sexism and juggling in the top 40 and and try to make some changes, right? That yeah, makes sense. I think I think we can fix all the problems and we should and we should have these conversations a lot. I sincerely hope that especially the guys in our community don't stop having questions and opinions on sexism just because the list is over, because that's not what it's about. I hope that they continue to ask questions and, and do research and get better about the, all of their privilege. Sexism, racism, just wealth, inequality, all of these things are important and self-awareness is important. We can't fix it all right away, but we can definitely try to make steps. You know, I think that's what Luke tried to do with this list and I appreciate that. Yeah, I just want to share I'm deeply appreciative of this list and this moment and the, um, you know, the comments that happened for calling to our attention once again, this conversation and this inequity within the community when we're in a position with quarantine with COVID where we're poised at our computers, like really ready to be thoughtful and, and, and consider these different perspectives. And I would just hope that everyone who's listening to this is, being, is, is considering these ideas and acknowledging the privilege cards that they hold. And, and sometimes we are having the conversation about male privilege. Other times we are having conversation about ageism and ableism. You know, all of these intersecting oppressions matter. And for, you know, holding this privilege card of being a white cis man, that doesn't make you a bad person at all. Yeah. And, you know, like that is totally fine. And you may feel a really deep experience of guilt or shame around that. But it's what you do with that privilege that makes the difference because privilege without action becomes a weapon. And we really want to leverage our privileges as tools while amplifying the voices of those who are at least heard. Yeah, I think it's important for people to to just be more self-aware and look at their surroundings and question their realities and question what they experience 
versus what somebody else in a completely different situation might experience and why that can be beneficial or harmful to them. And just doing that work, that that self-work to understand and empathize with other people in different situations can really help and go a long way. And um, for me, I, I really want to encourage people to always ask why something is the way it is. I'm always surprised that when I have conversations, especially around sexism or racism, people will stop really. They'll, they'll offer an explanation and then just assume that's the end of it. Um, you know, like why, why are there more men on the top 40 list? Well, because there's more men who juggle and then that's their answer, but they don't go why even deeper. Why are there more men that juggle? Why do I think that there are more men that juggle? Why would women not get to that point? Why would, you know, just really trying to understand why and that's hard to do when it doesn't affect you. So you have to put in work to do that. And the whole point of putting in that work is to try to make it so that problems, there are less problems for other people, which is hard. And that's what we got to do. And the problems do exist because people are saying they exist. And so listen to them, listen to how they say you can help and put in that work to help. I think it's really great that we don't have a ton of like, overt sexism, as you said, and Josie has mentioned, and but we do have a lot of that more subtle under the water iceberg. And a lot of that comes from having to look at yourself and your biases towards other people and what you can do to change that in yourself and others. And that's harder than just stepping in when somebody says something sexist, really challenging the way that you see the world and how you might be contributing to the problem and how others like you are contributing to the problem so you can help others. Well, I really appreciate it. I appreciate Josie May and Taylor Glenn. I appreciate you both being on the show and talking about your experiences and some of the things we can do to be more supportive. And I'm just going to leave it at that. I think uh, you guys did a wonderful job of, of explaining everything. And I really appreciate your time and your efforts. Thanks again, Josie May and Taylor Glenn for being on the Drop Everything podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Dan. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything Podcast, a special edition. A big thanks to Taylor Glenn and Josie May for their enlightening discussion. And also a big thanks to the IGA for their conventions and for all they do to support juggling in the world. Thank you, everybody. And drop everything except when you're juggling.